Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On today's episode, the wonderful Tasha Hansen joins me to discuss being a social worker, strategies to sustain a reliable flow in your life, and the importance of integrated healthcare. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Tasha, thanks so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you so much, Doug. It's an honor to be here. Well, I wanted to start off and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? When I first read this question, my brain exploded (laughs) into a million other questions (laughs) because I I kept trying to wing between, do I start with my exploration (laughs) of my own personal experience or do I talk about my professional experience? So I kind of tried to do a little of everything because I, the first time I'd ever even heard the word autism or even understood more about what autism was, was learning it from my aunt when her two, my niece and nephew were both diagnosed autistic. And I was in high school and it fascinated me because I didn't, I'd never heard of it before. I'd never heard of what that meant or what it was. And I had gone over to my aunt's house and been around her kiddos and I noticed that they were, it didn't seem like other kiddos that I'd been around or my siblings, but it did still I got along with them surprisingly well. (laughs) Who knew, right? So that's where it really began, was my interest in exploration and and starting this really unusual experience of being able to identify and understand. I became her respite for when she needed to go out and do things. And so I would go there two or three days a week for like three or four hours for her to be able to do other things because I was one of the only people that was able to get along with her kids. You know, that that really, I think, solidified something in me that I've always kind of gravitated back to. And after being in my field for quite a long time, you know, I, I started seeing more people who I felt like, have you ever been evaluated for being on the spectrum? Or, you know, or how are you navigating all of these things when clearly it seems like you're not being supported at all being autistic? And so it just it feels like I kind of went away from that exploration for a while. And then I came back to it about probably six years ago. And so that's when, you know, I came at it professionally and as an advocate, as a social worker. And that's when I went out on my own and started doing more specialization in my profession. And then my own personal journey didn't really start for my own exploration until about like a year and a half ago, I started meeting with Lisa Morgan because I wanted to understand more of how I could have a more affirming practice on my own when there weren't hard evidences of the best, most ideal ways to optimally support autistic adults, especially late identified. 
And so I felt like the only way that I could really have a really informed practice was to talk to other autistics who were also advocates and also trying to change and make an impact and contribute to the field and the system of these changes, right? So through my our, my, our conversations and our, our paid consultation I did with her, because I couldn't not with her without paying her, just <laughs> the ethic issue <laughs> for me. But she had asked me, have you ever explored your own neurodiversity? And I, that was the first time for me that I'd ever thought or considered, you know, why is it that I identify so much? Why is it that I can... I don't know, she, she felt like I could articulate things that seemed really unusual for somebody to be able to articulate that was neurotypical. But I didn't identify as neurotypical. Maybe ADHD. <laughs> so, but I, uh, but I didn't start exploring my own blurring with the spectrum until about a year and a half, almost two years ago. I just hadn't, I, I don't know, if I wasn't evaluated, right? right? It doesn't feel like I should do that. But also, I, there's this cognitive dissonance there because there's so many things that are so wrong with how neurodiversity has even been approached in psychology and the history of anything that studied human diversity, right? It's not this curious exploration of really wanting to understand. So anyway, it's been a really interesting journey, my story with autism, but it's rooted in, I think the, the best way I can really sum it up is that I just, there's a longing to understand people and there's a longing to be understood. And I think from a very early age, I experienced that when I go back and look at my own memories. And then I saw that a lot in my niece and nephew. And I continue to see it with especially late identified people who are on the spectrum because I don't know that there's a group of people that struggles articulating their experience more than autistics. And shout out to Lisa Morgan. I had the privilege to talk to Lisa on Autism Stories a while back. She's wonderful. I'm so grateful for my friendship and, and, and for her mentoring. Now, you, you earned your master's in social work and are a licensed mm -hmm. independent social worker. So I'm curious, what about social work made you want to explore this area for your career? Yeah, it's a real, I get this question a lot. A lot of people don't understand why people go into social work versus like psychology. And the root of that is usually rooted in social justice and social equity and, and systems change. People that go into social work want to make sure that environmental and sociological and anthropological factors are not taken out of our stories as humans. It's not just our genetics, and it's not just our origin stories. There's a lot of systemic factors that play into how we develop and survive the way that we do. And so I just, I, I didn't see another way to be able to be supportive unless it was holistic that way. So I really enjoyed learning how social work really tries as much as it can to be as inclusive as, pos as possible to every single dimension that can affect the human and really giving space for that autonomy and self-determination and dignity and worth of that story and not trying to spin it, you know, to fit into the systems, but really giving it that voice to be independent from all the systems. And so 
I think how it especially helps me now exclusively supporting late identified adults on the spectrum and that are that have neurodivergent conditions is that it's constantly challenging what is inclusion, what is social justice, and how is that intersectionality across all these systems and across all these vulnerabilities and marginalization, marginalized experiences, how do they all contribute to strain and disruption and burnout cycles and just like really difficult experiences that autistics have in these settings. So I'm really grateful for the training that I have because that paramount goal of identity and worth of a person trumps everything else because that story is lived experiences empirical evidence that we don't discount that at all. It doesn't have to be tested a certain way. Mm. (laughs) I'm grateful for that. You know what I mean? That, that kind of training and that foundation and trying to understand other people is, is really having validity in their story, their voice. Now, now just recently, I believe you accepted a position as agency field instructor at Boise State University of Social Work. So what, what exactly are you going to be doing um, as a field instructor? Yeah, it's an interesting story. I've been trying to network more in my local community with some of the local organizations that also work with autistic adults. And one of those is Trellis, the Trellis organization here in Kittitas County. And they, in addition to other neurodevelopmental conditions, they support this transition with high schoolers into adulthood. And that that's a huge difficulty for most people, but also especially for anyone that's neurodivergent or autistic. So I'd been reaching out to them, and one of their staff had said that they had an MSW student, master's social work student, who was looking for kind of their field instructor and supervisor for the last part of their degree this year. And I was really excited to connect with her and connect with Boise State University and just kind of see if this would be a good fit. And the interesting part is I'm clinically trained, and I've had exposure with nonprofits and worked with other agencies, but she is hoping to not be clinical, which I'm super excited about because she's more wanting, she wants to focus on, you know, honing those skills that help her make more impact systemically on a, on a bigger level. So I'm really excited because I have a great writing experience and health event, like health fairs and health events, and also doing some statistical and survey work. So she really wants to work beyond that one-on-one and really make a bigger impact. She's really passionate about what she does. And I'm really excited because she's, as a woman of color, she's going to be able to make a huge impact and for autistics to be, I mean, these are intersectionalities that are not really represented well in leadership and in advocacy. So I'm really excited for her to make an impact with, you know, some of those other intersectionalities in our rural areas with people of color. Now, I believe about two years ago, you founded Azimuth Counseling. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. It's okay. It's Azimuth. Azimuth. Okay. I, 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 was... didn't, know, I didn't know either. I didn't, <laughs> I talked to a couple of engineers to get that right. Okay. I, I wasn't sure about that. I know. It's a weird word. So the only time I have seen the word before, I just wasn't know, didn't know how to pronounce it. And every time I saw the word... I thought it was like related to the sun and the moon. So yeah. did yeah. that have anything to do with the 
naming of your counseling business? Yeah, it's, it's hard to name a business. Very hard. <laughs> and it's it's hard when there's different laws about it. So like in Washington State, you have to represent what you're doing if you're a licensed practitioner. And it doesn't matter what industry. If you have a practice license that creates vulnerability, the state has very strict <laughs> ways that they want you to, you know, kind of be within that parameter. Anyways, I can choose to put my name in there or I can choose to do something else. And I wasn't sure at that time if it was going to just be me or if there was going to be, if I, I wanted to leave it open to maybe growing. And so that took weeks to figure out. But I finally came to this concept of I, azimuth and I really, it really spoke to me. It's used in navigation and construction and being able to understand and observe observation point, like where you're at or where you're, or where you're pointed in your directional kind of observation to either a celestial point, like a 3D kind of point, and then the angle in between that from the north. So it's kind of a weird, one of the ways I've heard it explained is spheric, uh, spherical trigonometry. And the way that I kind of explain it outside of those kind of terms is like if somebody is building a house and they want to have the most sun exposure on their house or they want to have, they have solar panels and they want to have the most exposure on their solar panels or their garden, they're going to want to calculate the azimuth where their house is pointed and how it's direct. It's for all of the seasons and where the sun is moving throughout the sky. So like, I think that for late identified neurodivergence and autistics, it's, we're still trying to figure out where we are. <laughs> like, where is our observation point? Most of us have lived lives of intense masking and in, in intense survival modes where we have a lot of different strain and stress and depression and anxiety and trauma where the observation point is not where we want to be <laughs> and kind of we don't really know exactly where we want to be either but we just know we want it to feel better so when we're kind of putting that point in time and in time and space outside of us that's where I want to head I want to head to a place of more contentment and peace and just like less nail biting and grip bearing you know, less trying to just do this survival grind, you know, where is that and where's that going? And so I, I feel like as a counselor, it's important to not be the, you know, we're not the source of what people are trying to explore in themselves and we're not the source of the answers of where they're headed, but we're there to help kind of validate some of their experiences with just being an outside person you know, to help them shed some of the things that have not been helpful to them and haven't been protective for their identity. And then how do we help them, you know, just kind of explore what is working and what is not working for them and build a life and create a life that's more sustainable, more optimal, and more compassion flexible for them. And it's very, I think, difficult for autistics to be equitable to themselves because at all costs, they will want to make sure everyone else, <laughs> they want to keep everything as neutral as possible <laughs> with the least amount of impact possible for everybody else. So if everyone else demands 50%, they're fine. They don't care how much comes out of them. They just want to make sure everyone's got their 50% and they just, I just think that's something that is a knee jerk kind of reaction. And it takes a lot out of us. It takes a big toll on our lives by not kind of being equitable to ourselves. It's very hard. It takes a lot of tolerance. Mm -hmm. 
So you had, you just mentioned kind of uh, sustaining and sustainability. And for me, systems are so important in my yeah. life and um, understanding it's important in your counseling to tailor strategies that kind of create yeah. sustainability. So what strategies have you found that are more likely to maybe help autistics to sustain their their system or kind of the, a reliable flow that that's helpful to them? Yeah, I really was excited about this question because I think this is a point that a lot of people are doing a lot of research on and exploration and just kind of processing, like telling their stories so that they can try this. Like, how did you hack your life? How did you survive your life? How did you do this? Like, there's a lot of this beautiful storytelling right now of people just being able to feel more courage and more confidence to be able to have a voice and say, this is what my experience was. So I think that's actually where it starts. When I first meet somebody who's either exploring or recently diagnosed, it's crazy to me, Doug, how much they don't know sometimes because they didn't feel allowed. They didn't feel like they were allowed to do that until after like the sequential and I experienced that too. Like, I feel like I'm not allowed to do certain things because I haven't been evaluated or I haven't had this. Like, it has to be in the sequence to be able to be valid. And so we start there. And many of the stories I work with or the many of the people that I work with, we just start with, like, where they're at and how things are working and trying to discover this voice of actually saying it's not okay. It's really difficult to kind of peel back these layers and not me. I am a big fan of consent. It sounds like a weird sentence, but I think that's one of the things that's been robbed of a lot of autistics throughout their life is this consent. And so I want to find this balance of offering a different perspective or offering something else to talk about, but at the same time, really guarding that consent so people feel this respect and autonomy of, you know, I don't want to talk about that today or I don't want to go there today or this brings up a lot for me and I, I want to do that at a different time. And that's, it's a hallowed space for me. And I, I see the impact when people are treated with respect and they have consent over their stories and they have consent over what they want to focus on and what they can focus on that day. It, it really works more and more momentum to feeling this curiosity to actually look below these masks and survival systems that we've survived that we've created for ourselves and the more that they become curious the more they're willing to look at things that they haven't looked at before so then after we kind of get this kind of consent and this curiosity like this momentum for them going of that this that exploration some of the heavy hitting things that we talk about very quickly are first their body just how their sensory processing works how their perception of sensory experiences are and not just your five senses, <laughs> talking like anything, energy, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Whatever is your in part of your perception and experience, we kind of explore that where they find the biggest disruptions and where they're surprised by flows, even unwanted flows, but they still feel like they're functioning. We, mm -hmm. we explore all that. And then we talk about soothers versus like primers, things that help prime us to be able to transition between tasks or transition between things that we need to get done versus kind of deflecting and kind of going into these soothing states where we're overwhelmed or stressed or tired or decompressing or 
you know, trying to cope with something that happened. And then we talk a lot about ethics and impacts to talk about equity. That the, Those are the two things that I talk about to tether out our outliers to that neutrality. Like we have a lot of high ethics for what we expect of ourselves and that has a huge impact on us. When we don't have more equity and that neutrality, then we can't reduce the impact on us and have a little more shared equity or ethics. If we, if we have these high ethics for ourselves, and, but we don't have any ethics for other people that they have to adhere to in how they treat us, like it's very skewed, you know? So I talk about how ethics and impacts have a huge, you know, there's a lot of work there that we can do to help us have the tolerance to be compassionate to ourselves when we talk about selfishness and like shame and guilt and all the things that go along with selfishness, I usually, one of the ways I ha- I ask people to think about it is, okay, are you being exploitive? <laughs> are you trying to take advantage of anybody? Then you're not being selfish. I, this is, I don't know how, I don't want to be, I guess you can edit this if you need to. <laughs> Another concept that we talk about sometimes is called asshole phobia. <laughs> and <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> A lot of the people that I work with that are autistic, they just want to do all that they can to not be an asshole. (laughs) Being able to have some tolerance for their own equity makes them feel like an asshole. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we talk about how that is a huge barrier. You know, this this association with anything that's equitable to yourself is is egregious or taken away from somebody else or exploitive or... And then the only other thing I'll just uh, distinguish really quick on one of the things that we talk about is the difference between, we all talk about boundaries a lot, and this isn't probably a new concept, but this is how I explain it. Your boundaries should be like your cliff. Like that should be your hard, firm, pokey no. And I said, we need a little bit of this gray buffer for exceptions and outliers. We need limits. And so I try to help people develop, you know, where are optimal limits that it doesn't take anything from tomorrow. It doesn't take anything from next week. I don't have to borrow time, energy, or money from the next few days or the next few weeks because of this decision I'm making today that's outside of my limit. And there may be exceptions that come into play where, you know, this isn't optimal for me. This isn't within kind of my, my limits for what I can sustain today. But because of these exceptions, you know, I'm going to make that decision today, but I'm still going to keep my boundary. So I'm not going to go beyond this hard line, but I'm willing to have some flexibility here that takes a little bit away from me that's extra beyond my limits. And it gives us a better way to measure that. I think decision making is very difficult for some autistics. And so having a very methodical way of being able to filter decisions, especially if they impact other people, it's really important to have more firm ways to do that methodically. And so when we talk about limits, the buffer and boundaries, it helps them have a little more protection to get away from some of those exceptions that are difficult to manage. That's a huge sustainability piece that we work with because I think of all of the things that take or that have the most disruption persistently with autistics, it's managing people. That's why we isolate a lot. You know, it's why we avoid a lot of systems that require a lot of people. And it's because they're so unpredictable, so chaotic, and it's so difficult to feel like you're negatively impacting other people. That's so overwhelming that it's easier to just avoid and isolate. From from my understanding, you're knowledgeable about integrated healthcare 
which I think you know so important because yeah. this is an approach that's based on a lot of collaboration and communication. And so often in healthcare, they definitely have yeah. seen this lacking. So have you seen examples of how integrated healthcare can be helpful to autistic and neurodiverse folks? Yeah, I, again, this, your questions are so phenomenal, Doug. Like when I was reading the questions that you said to me, I was like, wow, you're talented at being able to come up with really good, relevant <laughs> and contextually important questions. And I, I don't mean just sound, I don't know. I just, I was so grateful that you asked this question, I guess is what I really am trying to say. So again, this is another question that like lit my brain up <laughs> in so many layers and how I can try to, I tried to articulate it down to three areas that were really critical. And one is primary care providers are, are general practitioners. Those people are where everyone filters back to as gatekeepers to healthcare. So it doesn't matter if you give the ER, you have to have a follow-up with the PCP, the primary care provider. If you want a referral anywhere to anything at any time, including labs, anything, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. You have to have a PCP. You have to have a primary care provider. This is something that people don't totally understand why it is the way it is. And there's a lot of complexity as to why this is the way it is. But this is almost kind of like your health care. So that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But if frame it in this way, if somebody who is exploring their neurodivergence or if they have done some self-assessments and done tests online and talked to different people and they really are resonating with being autistic, the only way that you're going to move forward with that is if you have a big wad of cash <laughs> or if you have a primary care provider. And the only way you can have a primary care provider often is if you have insurance. And that's a whole nother thing. Insurance is very frustrating and complicated. And the thing that I will say about insurance is they're even the gatekeepers for primary care. The primary care providers might be really knowledgeable. They might be really experienced. They might be advocates. And then they're held back from what they're able to do and offer to you from the insurance carrier. That's another layer of complexity that can be a, a huge barrier to getting any kind of access to care let alone referrals, is if the insurance carrier is completely primed to pediatric neurodivergence or neurodevelopmental evaluations, but not adult or even teen evaluations, it's really difficult. There's a lot of criteria that people want to have met in a prior authorization to get permission from an insurance company to be evaluated in order to get a referral. If that criteria can't be met, or if the provider, the primary care provider doesn't believe that that criteria can be met, that's where it could stop. Like, and that's an opinion. It's very frustrating. Like one of the most effective things I think that I can help, this is my final point, sorry, my third point, is one of the most effective ways to help people who are exploring their neurodivergence or, or autistic traits and characteristics is one, Make sure that you understand your health insurance, or if you don't have insurance, understand the providers that work on a cash basis in your area. When you're establishing with a PCP, always ask, you know, what's their experience working with autism and ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia? Like, what is their experience, and do they feel confident? Mm -hmm. That's a really important 
question to ask providers is how confident are they working with this population? What's been their experience? How have they been successful in supporting autistics in their practice that are adults? And I think that's another critical aspect of filtering who's gonna be in your healthcare team is asking those questions. What's your experience working with autistic adults? What's your success? What have you found most successful? What have you found most helpful working with autistic adults? If they can't answer those questions, or if they look at you in a deer in the headlights, or they're like, I need to give you a referral, they don't even ask any questions. Like, there's no curiosity at all. That's a red flag to me. If you have a doctor that's not curious and wanting to understand, and so that navigation is a whole, that's something I've been trying to work on with content too, Diagus, because I just feel like there's so many barriers to healthcare and navigating providers and navigating referrals that it feels like a Russian roulette to a lot of adults. I don't even know if this referral is gonna be effective. And I gotta go to a two, three hour intake or I gotta wait two or three months to even set up with this person and then I meet with them and maybe they laugh. Mm. How do you think you're autistic? You have a job, you graduated, you have a degree. It's amazing how much stigma there is around neurodivergent conditions if you've done certain performative things in your life. So it's just really challenging to navigate. So if you you could ask those questions to your insurance carrier, if they allow for adult autistic evaluations or neurodevelopmental evaluations. And if you can ask your team or your provider or your facility that you go to, who's confident working with autistic adults or you know, adults with a neurodivergent condition, that will help. That sounds very helpful. And Tasha, how can our listeners learn about you beyond this interview? I mean, I have a website. It's it's azcpllc.com. I'm still kind of developing my own voice. I think that's what I've realized in the last two years of kind of being out on my own, working in healthcare systems for so long that kind of grinds a voice out of you. <laughs> when you're outside of the system as well, you start to have a very different experience because you know, you're going against the grain. It's not easy to have a counseling practice where you take state insurance and Medicare. And I have a very difficult time. Everyone's answer in different areas that I look at or different colleagues that I talk to, you know, their answer is you just need to take more cash. And to me, that's a huge, huge barrier to care the demographic that I'm focusing on because many need insurance and many they struggle with employment so a lot of them have state insurance and then as you age autistically or age with neurodivergence like your needs change and so it's I don't feel ethical at all about doing a cash practice working with the demographic that I do the reason why I chose to not do coaching I've had a hard time with that decision too because I can offer some protection with my license. I can offer support for FMLA applications for work. I can offer support with like emotional support animals for their places of living or apartments. And I can offer support for like excusals with work. So it's hard. It's been really hard for me to understand where's the best contribution I can make and where's the impact that I really want to make. And it's hard. I'm still on that journey, to be really honest. 
I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to lose the opportunity to make an impact, but I don't know the best way to make that impact yet. I'm still trying to discover that myself, to mm -hmm. be frank. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of blurring with healthcare, though. I work with a number of providers that are autistic and that are completely silent. They don't want anyone to know, ever. They want better ways to mask. So the one thing I thought that I have started to kind of gravitate toward is how can I have more impact in the healthcare system? Because I've been working it for so long. I've worked in primary care for over eight years. I've worked in hospital settings, rural settings, urban settings. So like, I feel like there's something more that I can offer to neurodivergent healthcare providers and doctors who are working the system. They don't feel safe to be kind of out, like live out loud and talk to their employers or their colleagues about, they don't feel safe at all to reveal that they're autistic. So I feel like there's a special base there of impact that I might be able to have just because of my experiences. I understand the culture some in some ways. I don't, I think it's, it's very contradictory <laughs> to how I feel, but but I, I've had to be in it, I guess is what I mean by understand. I don't understand it, but I just, I've had to survive in it, hmm. you know. I'm curious uh, about one other experience you've had. Um, you know, we talked about uh, your your work with Boise State and your counseling, but you are also on the board of directors and the professional advisory board chairperson for the Autism Society of Washington. What's been, um, you know, your experience so far? Yeah, thank you again for asking this question as well. I, this is a new opportunity this year for me as well, this last year for me as well. It was in August that I that I was accepted onto the board of directors. And I think the true biggest takeaway I can, I can take away from these just short months that I've been on that board and trying to restore and revitalize the professional advisory board is how much is not being done in the state of Washington. I think it's just really shocking to me to get more, to get closer to this, to really seeing how much work really needs to be done in my own state. You know, Washington's traditionally been kind of seen as this blue state, a very progressive state. There's a lot of leadership in our state with medical advancements and psychiatric advancements in some ways. And I, when you start looking at the supports for autistic teens and adults, it's not there. And you start looking at the laws that protect pediatric access to care and pediatric support and all the language that's not inclusive for adults. It's shocking to me. So I think of all the takeaways I could take away is that I don't understand why the huge deficits exist in, in the state that I do right now. I would expect the, some, some of the broken systems and holes and deficits from a different state, maybe. And I don't know why I have this assumption. It's really weird. It's been a weird experience, to be honest. And we have heavy hitters in our state. We have J. David Hall and Anthony Kraft and Marcy. Like, we have heavy hitters in our state that have been huge and instrumental and in advocating for autistics. It's shocking to me that they've been working for so long, over a decade, you know, of work in our state. And it just, I don't, I don't understand. So I think there's some other, there's other layers and other systemic barriers in my own state that I'm learning about. And Autism Society of Washington, historically, is a, an older advocacy group, but it was created by parents. 
and there's some problems with that you know they don't live autistic lives and just because you have proximity to autism doesn't mean that you understand it in the same way as when you live it so i think my role on the board is i've advocated for more standards for how we select a board like it, that we protect positions that are only for adults with autism or we protect positions that are only for lgbtq only bipoc you know people of color like that we protect positions to make sure that we have a diverse board that we're not all parents with autistic autistic kids like that's not that can't be the reason why we're on the board mm-hmm. like that's not enough I've tried to push that agenda and the other agenda I've tried to push is to try to get every I've identified I think 12 rural counties we have 39 counties in our state I believe and there's 12 they're very rural that have very low access to care just a couple of PCPs in their entire county and trying to make sure that their public health department in their county just has information and resources for autism for our state and we do a webinar once a month to promote services and supports um, and, and resources in our state and have speakers. So it's, I mean, it's, I'm excited to be a part of this work. I'm excited to be a part of an agency in our state that can have an impact for the state. And I'm really excited and passionate about getting more access to resources and support and services and just information to rural counties in our state. I'm really passionate about rural healthcare because I, I feel like that's where people suffer the most. Well, Tasha, I always love talking with you. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful to have this time. I appreciate your flexibility in meeting with me later than our first initial meeting. And thank you for giving me this space to just kind of share my, my journey. Thanks so much to Tasha for the conversation. To learn more about Tasha, please check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides neurodiversity-affirming support by autistics for autistics through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit autismpersonalcoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.